0: takes place about 470 years before Christ. The Jews were scattered in an exile around the Persian Empire. They'd been conquered by the Babylonians, and the Babylonians were conquered by the Persians, and they were basically pawns on a big chess game. Their temple had been destroyed. The city of Jerusalem leveled. A few people had now returned with Ezra and Nehemiah, but it was a mess, and people wondered, where was God? And Now, in response to that, God, this book was written. Now, God's name is never mentioned in this book. So if you read it through, maybe you noticed that, that. In fact, it was one of the big controversies that the name of God is not mentioned in the entire book of Esther. And the reason is because uh, it has to do with the whole message of the book, and that's this. When God seems far away, he's not. When God seems invisible and absent, he's not. When you are far away from home, your own home, Physically, emotionally, spiritually, and you wonder, where is God? And you He he's not absent, he's very much present, he's very much there. When God's promises seem untrue, because of negative circumstances and crises are going on in your life, they are true. And when you can't see God, or you can't feel God, or you wonder what's his purpose, and you feel like, again, he's abandoned you, the point of this book is, he has not. And so we can see, as we'll go through the story in just a few minutes, by the details in the book that God's moving all over the place, but his name is never overtly mentioned. In fact, what happens here could never have happened except for the hand of God. And so it's easy for us now. In fact, as I tell a story of Esther and, and people have read the book, they say, oh, yeah, of course she responded well. And Why? Because we know the end of the story. But when you're in the middle of your story, or in the beginning of your story and everything's going haywire, it's not so easy. So I want you to step back for a minute with me and, because the reality is, for, for many of us, to see that God's in control, it's easy to say, yes, God's in control when it's all over. But when you're in it, you don't know where he is. And so God seems far away, and God does seem silent. And, and you know, it's kind of like you're in a forest sometimes, and, you, and like, there's no way out. And so you, know, you get angry and mad, and oh God, what's going on here? I can't find my way. But he's there. he's taking you somewhere if you'll put your hand in his hand. And for some of us, our stories um, are are right now, we're in the middle of our story of difficulty, like Esther was. And it may be from a betrayal of a friend or shattered dream or financial catastrophe or the death of someone you love or loneliness or parenting with a child that's just not going the way you hoped and just the pain that you're carrying with that or the pain of loneliness of a relationship that didn't work out. Or just having been scarred emotionally by somebody, or uh, caring for your parents who are aged, whatever it might be for you. It's very tough when you're in the middle of stuff to say that God's in control. Very difficult. And uh, especially if you're in the beginning of it or the middle of it, your story. Now, it was tough for Esther, and I want you to hear that. It was not easy for Esther to walk this thing out. And uh, she could not see the end of her story. We do, because we're reading it, you know, and... And, uh, but she, she was willing to submit to the goodness of God, even when she didn't feel the goodness of God. And uh, I don't know, I want to just ask you today as we kind of launch out here, where are you now? Where are you today in your story, your life, and your journey, and, and your story, of your which got, has got some pain in it and some suffering and difficulty in it? And I know that because you're living on this planet, and nobody's exempt. It's part of living in a fallen world. But the point of this book is to encourage you in the middle of your story, in the middle of your journey to even though you can't see sometimes what God's doing, it's to encourage you to endure knowing that God's in control. That's the point of this book. God wants to encourage you to endure. We sang about not enduring earlier, to endure because you know and can trust that God is in control even though I can't see him, feel him, or I don't even know where he is and what he's doing. Now. Some of us, just a quick note on the side, some of us are in suffering and pain because it's happened to us. Others of us are in suffering and pain because we've brought it on ourselves. Because of things that we've done, we are reaping what we've sown. Now understand, even when that's the case, if you will offer that in honesty and integrity back to God, he will take that and forge good out of it. But it requires getting out of denial and rebellion and coming honestly and offering, even as you walk through the consequences of your sin or rebellion, whatever it might be, you offer it back to God, then he takes it and forges and brings some good out of it for his good and and his glory. Now, let's go to the story of Esther, and we're going to move on to, we've been talking about four ingredients that enabled Esther to move from being a shallow, superficial, self-absorbed pretty girl to a mature, godly hero who defied the culture around her and fulfilled God's purpose for her life. And we're on really the last message of four. And um, it began in chapter one, if you remember the story, of the king is called Xerxes and the queen is Vashti. The king Xerxes had a wild party seven days in a row. Everyone's pretty much drunk. He calls on his wife to come on out to show her beauty. And Queen Vashti says, basically, bug off. I am not going to come. So he throws her out of her queenship and goes, looks for another queen. Somebody who will play by the rules of the game. And he holds a Miss Universe beauty contest in which Esther enters. Now, Esther is a believer, Jewish, and, uh, but she denies her godly heritage. Her faith goes into this beauty contest, basically has sex with a pagan king, and uh, gets herself elected queen. Of the most powerful empire in the world it's a great situation in that sense humanly speaking now at the same time her father who had adopted her was named mordecai and mordecai had uncovered a plot against the king and saved the king's life but the king never really found out about it uh, and we're introduced to to this new player in the story called haman in chapter three haman is the number two man in the empire he's the Chief operating officer. He's the number. He's the chief of state. He he runs the empire for the king, but Haman hates Jews, and he goes. He comes from a family of Agagites, and we talked a few weeks ago about Agagites. They were historically people who hated the Jews, and so he's in power under the king, and he has an incident with Mordecai, who refuses to bow down to him. He finds out Mordecai is Jewish, and decides he wants to kill Mordecai. But when he finds out he's a Jew, he wants to kill all the Jews in the whole empire, so he convinces the king to proclaim an edict that on a certain day all the Jews in the entire empire will be killed. It will be a holocaust. It will be genocide. And the king signs off on it. Now the way he picks what day this should happen on is they cast lots. Because Haman believes in luck, believes in karma, believes in psychics, gypsies, you know, he just coincidences and chances. So he plays the dice, you know, lots is kind of like dice. And he gets the day marked out. Now, so it's a catastrophe, the greatest superpower of the day deciding, with all the military might behind it, they're going to kill every Jew in the empire on a certain day. It's a crisis. So now in chapter 4 Mordecai, who's Esther's father, uh, goes and sends a note to Esther and urges her to basically step up and do something, speak to the king. And uh, she initially says no, she will not go because it's dangerous, she could get herself killed. And if you walk into the king's presence without being invited, you get killed unless he gives you a, you know, blows a scepter by and he says you can live. And she'd not been called in for 30 days. And she doesn't want to risk it. She's been, again, she's been shallow, self-absorbed into herself, her own career and life. She doesn't want to get involved with all these believers who are going to get killed and all the mess that could be. And so she wants to stay in her little world. So we talked about what moved her from being shallow, superficial, self-absorbed into a heroic, defiant woman of God. And we identified four points, four ingredients. Today's the last ingredient. So let me just very quickly mention the first three. Let's go by them one to three real quickly. We said the first ingredient was strong direction and challenge by a loving friend. It took Mordecai to get in her face to say, listen, honey. Let me read chapter 4, verse 13 and 14. In fact, go to me to chapter 4, verse 13 and 14. This is the core of the book. And Mordecai says to her when she says, I don't want to do it. I want to stay where I am. I don't want to step up. He says, do not think that because you are in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will come from another place. But you and your father's family will perish. And who knows but that you have come to royal position for such a time as this. And Mordecai says to her, listen, you don't want to step up for God. You want to stay in your little world. Let me tell you something. Uh, God will raise up somebody else to get it done. But you will bear the consequences of this because God puts you there. He puts you in that royal position. He gave you your beauty. He gave you your personality. He gave you everything that got you there in the first place for such a time as this. It wasn't an accident. But if you don't respond, just so you know, you will reap what you've sown. You and your family will perish as well. But uh, he pushes her hard. And we talked about that it takes in our lives loving parents, sometimes counselors, friends, to speak the truth to get us to move on with God, get us out of denial, and maybe step out of our comfort zone for where God may want to take us. Then we talked about a second ingredient, because the first is not enough. It takes a crisis to get us moving often, and we all said amen to that. Because crises force us to reveal who I am, what I'm about, where am I going, and what do I value. Crises, unlike anything else, bring out the core of who you are and what you're about. And the third point we mentioned last week, which is the whole message, was she had to come to a place of doing practical obedience, requiring a personal choice. And this was found in verse 15, 16, where she says, okay, she makes a step of obedience and says, I'll go. To have everybody pray for me in Susa, the capital, and she says these great lines at the end of verse sixteen and underline them if you didn't last week. I will obey if I perish, I perish. And we talked about it. it's obeying when it seems like it'll lead to a disaster. It'll be a mess. God will just who knows what will happen. But practical obedience is what she finally decides to do regardless of the consequences. And it's a great moment. But even that is not enough. There's going to be one thing more. And it's really the rest of the book. And let's go down to the fourth point, which is the point for today, which is there's enduring. It's not just a one-shot deal. Yes, I made the decision to practically obey. It's going to require, on her part, enduring, knowing God's in control. I'll say it one more time. It's enduring, knowing that God's in control. Now understand that what happens is in chapter 5, when she decides to go to the king, we read it last week, um, things get worse before they get better, like often happens when we obey God. Now the king is, you know, is ready to listen to her, but Haman, meanwhile, the guy who hates the Jews and is and is. Orchestrated this whole genocide, has built these 75 foot gallows to hang Mordecai on. He's boasting to all his family and friends about how great he is and how powerful he is and all his kids and how the king and queen love him. And it looks like things are getting worse. Uh, And, you know, she really hasn't popped the question yet. She's making some steps of obedience, but she's really not quite gotten there yet. And so um, understand that the kind of person King Xerxes was for her. Xerxes, and his story is told, and some of you know in in college, you may have studied Herodotus, a Greek historian. And he writes about King Xerxes, and here's the kind of person her husband was. Uh, When Xerxes was marching against Greece to conquer it, uh, there was a fellow in the Persian Empire named Pythias who was rich. In fact, he was supposed to be the second wealthiest person in the empire after Xerxes. And he, he said, listen, Xerxes, I will pay for all of your costs to conquer Greece. But Xerxes said, nah, no thanks. I can take care of it myself. Soon afterwards, Pythias comes back to Xerxes and says, listen, um, I have five sons who are in your army. Would you mind? I'm sick now. I'm elderly. I want the oldest son. Could you give him permission to come back home and take care of me during the war? When Xerxes got this message, he told his head of the captains to take the eldest son and to cut him in half and to lay both, so- both halves, one half on one side of the road and the other half on the other side of the road. Because he wanted the army on the way to Greece to march through the body and everybody to see what would happen if you think about going home. So obviously Xerxes is not a very nice fellow. <laughs> and uh, as you'll see, I think he's got some anger problems. And um, so when she has to go and approach Xerxes, and break the rules to ask him about saving the Jews and overturning the wrong edict he has enacted in the empire, this is very risky business. And so she may start out, but enduring is another story. Yes, God's in control. Yeah? It's easy for you to say you're not Esther going up to Xerxes. Just like it's easy for me to say, oh, yeah, God's in control. And you're in the middle of your divorce or your sickness or your catastrophe at work or your uh, dream that's been shattered, whatever it is for you. It's very different to say, I'm going to endure because I know God's in control. Let's read chapter 6, verse 1. So here it is. She's, she's making the plunge to talk to Xerxes. That night, chapter 6, verse 1, the king could not sleep. So he ordered the book of the Chronicles, the record of his reign, to be brought in and read to him. Now understand, the guy couldn't sleep. And so, I mean, he could have... He could have drank one, and got drunk, you know. He could have called in the musicians to sing, put him to sleep. But he decides to do some reading. And being an egomaniac, what should I read? He decides, hmm, I'll read a book about myself. Gets it off the shelf and tells one of the couriers, start reading about me. And as he's reading and maybe half falling asleep, he just happens to turn to this page and, and verse 2. And it was found, recorded there, that Mordecai, that's Esther's father, had exposed Bigthana and Tegresh, two of the king's officers who guarded the doorway, who had conspired to assassinate King Xerxes. What honor and recognition has Mordecai received for this? The king asked. Nothing has been done for him. His attendants answered. And the king said, who's in the court now? It's probably like 5 o'clock in the morning. You know. And now Haman had just entered the court, outer court of the palace, to speak to the king about hanging Mordecai on the gallows that he had erected for him. Now just imagine, just it's a great movie. You see Haman coming in to hang Mordecai? He doesn't know the king just read this. And the king, and the king says, "Order, bring him in. Verse uh, 6, when Haman entered, the king asked them, what should be done for the man the king delights to honor? Well, now Haman thought to himself, who is there the king would rather honor than me? So he lays it on triple thick. So he answered the king, for the man the king delights to honor, have them bring a royal robe the king has worn, and a horse the king has ridden, one with a royal crest placed on his head. Then let the robe and horse be entrusted to one of the king's most noble princes. Let them robe the man the king delights to honor and lead him on the horse through the city streets, proclaiming before him, "This is what is done for the man the king delights to honor." Go at once, the king answered, demanded, commanded Haman. Get the robe and the horse and do just as you have suggested for Mordecai the Jew, who sits at the king's gate. Do not neglect anything you've recommended. I mean, imagine his face. I mean, oh, if Spielberg can get a hold of this, this will be unbelievable. And so Haman gets the robe and the horse. He He robed Mordecai and led him on horseback through the city streets, proclaiming before him, this is what is done for the man the king delights to honor. I mean, just imagine that scene. What a reversal. So afterward, Mordecai returned to the king's gate, but Haman rushed home. You better believe it. With his head covered in grief. And told Zeresh, his wife, and all his friends, everything that had happened to him. His advisors and his wife, Zeresh, said to him, Since Mordecai before him, your downfall has started, is of Jewish origin, you cannot stand against him. You will surely come to ruin. Thanks, honey. And while they were still talking with him, the king's eunuchs arrived and hurried Haman away to the banquet. Esther had prepared. I mean, friends. Friends he is in deep trouble. Chapter 7, verse 1. So now here's the banquet. The king and Haman went to dine with Queen Esther. And as they were drinking wine on that second day, the king asked again, Queen Esther, what's your petition? Then verse 3. Ready? If, it, if I have found favor with you, O king, and if it pleases your majesty, grant me my life. That is my petition. And spare my people. This is my request. For I and my people have been sold for destruction and slaughter and annihilation. If we had merely been sold as male and female slaves, I would have kept quiet because no such distress would would justify disturbing the king. King Xerxes asked Queen Esther, who is he? Where is the man who has dared to do such a thing? And Esther says, the adversary and enemy is this vile Haman. Then Haman was terrified before the king and the queen. You better believe it. And then jumping to verse 9. Then Harbona, one of the eunuchs, attending the king, said, A gallows 75 feet high stands by Haman's house. He has made it for Mordecai, who spoke up to help the king. The king said, Hang him on it. So they hanged Haman on the gallows. He had prepared for Mordecai, and then the king's fury subsided. A lot of anger in that man that got rid of Haman. So then what happens in chapter 8, Mordecai takes over Haman's position and then at the end of the book in chapter 9, the Jews set up, Mordecai sets in the empire, now they reverse the king's edict and then they set up from now on through all of history on a certain day, two days, and a month of the year, the Jews will celebrate what's known as Purim. Many of you Jewish believers in, in uh, church here. I celebrated it your whole life, Purim, and that is to celebrate the reality, the fact that God's in control. I want you to hear that. That's the message. Like In other words, uh, Haman thought that he was in control, of circumstances, luck, and all that. So he was the man in power. But the point of Purim, the point of the book, is that it's not about chance. It's not about luck. It's about the living God. Some trust in horses. Some trust in chariots. But we trust in the name of our God. Uh, Psalm 20. And so hell is not in control. Haman's not in control. This evil empire's not in control. As God is. So the question is, even though Haman may build 75 foot gallows, even though he may be full of hate and vengeance toward me and God's people, uh, even though he may boast that have all this power, he doesn't have the power God does. And so there are no coincidences with God. God's in control. And so how is it that Vashti in chapter 1 refuses to come to Esther? Was it um, refused to come to King Xerxes and gets thrown out of power. Was that an accident? No. God was overseeing that. Was it an accident that when Esther enters the contest, the guy in charge of the harem likes her and gives her seven maidens to make her look beautiful for months and months and months? Was that an accident? No. God moved down that. Was it an accident the fact that, that the uh, king of all the women that he could have chosen in the empire just happened to have favor with Esther? And was it an accident? How is it that uh, at the... At the um, The king, when he's bored and can't sleep that night, of all the things he could have done, decides to just pick up a book. And of all the books, picks up a book about himself, and of all the chapters in the book, just happens to turn to the page about where Mordecai had saved his life. Was it just an accident? How is it? How could that have happened? How is it that Haman had such hatred for the Jews, and yet he's the one, the number two man in power? How did he get there? Was it just just bad luck? No. God was overseeing that whole thing for his glory and his honor and ultimately for the good of his people. How is it that the king receives Esther? He just happens to be in a good mood that day. And how is it that the, the gallows that were prepared for H- Mordecai end up around uh, Haman's neck? And how is it that centuries later, through this race of people through whom we're going to be annihilated, a young boy would be born who would grow up to die for the sins of the world. And all because a king couldn't sleep one night. What I'm saying is our lives are no exception to the fact that God delights in arranging circumstances. He just arranges them. Just think of, think of a, a picnic you may have planned at one time, and. You start, the day starts out nice and warm, you got the grill out, you've got your friends coming over, your family, and all of a sudden, by 12 o'clock, it's pouring out. And you say, you know, and then, because God's trying to get you perhaps back home talking with Joe, your neighbor, and because God wants a spiritual conversation starter which can eventually get him into the kingdom. But, you know, how did God pull all that off? You know, was it just a miracle, God sent rain out of nowhere? No, because even while it was warm in your backyard, Five miles above the air was starting to cool. Was it a miracle that the air was starting to cool five miles up? No, it was a polar jet stream bringing colder air from the northwest. And so uh, what's happening, ice crystals are being formed and water molecules, and yet by the time it gets down here, it's all wet. But where did that jet stream come from? Well, it came from 200 miles north. What shot it your way this particular weekend? Well, something happened. Uh, three days ago, a jet stream disturbance over the Canadian Rockies. And where'd that come from? Well, the precise path of this Earth stream had to do with the Earth's rotation, the the Pacific Ocean's water compressed temperature, yet the temperature was being affected back in April when the right amount of cloud cover was letting in the right amount of sunlight. Then 6,000 miles away and four years earlier, a volcano spewed ashes into the atmosphere that affected last April's cloud cover. And 11 years before that, the sun was gearing up for its next sunspot cycle and eventually affected last April's Pacific temperature. God's been thinking about your friend, Joe, for a long time. My point is that little rainstorm goes way back. In the intricacies, I don't understand half of what I read. Don't worry about it, you know. But (laughs) I read it. I was so impressed. But the point is this, that most of us can't see God at all when there's trials and difficulties. We don't know where He is. And God's point is, He's very much in control. He's very much active. In fact, He screens every trial and difficulty that comes into your life. Every person that walks in your life that's a trial, God screened him or her from eternity past. Nothing happens by accident, says God. And so He takes even every tragedy, even sins committed against us, and He weaves it into His plan. And so God claims in Esther, he runs the world all the time. Not sometimes, all the time. And so nothing touches me, nothing touches you without God giving his nod first. Just like in the book of Job, God gave permission first. And so uh, the Lord works out everything for his own will, even the wicked for the day of disaster. That comes from Proverbs chapter 16 verse 4. Psalm 115 says, our God is in heaven. He does whatever he pleases. And so we doubt, a lot of us say, we, we, things are going on in our lives, and we say, you know, God left me. God's gone. He's, he's absent. It's because we're like, if you can picture this, you ever, you ever try to put a, a, a single bed sheet on a double bed, and you get one side under, and the other side pops up, and then you go around the bed and you get the other side in and the other. And you just can't get it on the double bed or the queen size bed. It just doesn't fit. That's like our intellects and our ability to understand what's going on. Like we got God in this single bed sheet. But your life is a king size. And it just, your intellect just can't grasp what's going on. It's like the Trinity. We believe in God. But yet God exists in three persons, but he's one God. Well, how can that be? Three separate persons, one God. It's incomprehensible to our minds. We can't possibly fathom it because we have a single bed sheet and God's a a king size. And so that's why Paul says in Romans, Oh, the depths of the wisdom of the riches of the knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. That's why Paul wrote, We see through a mirror dimly partially, we don't see fully, we just see a little bit through, but someday in heaven, we'll see face to face, we'll see the big picture and at that point, even though suffering is a mystery now, and it very much is, it'll take heaven to sort it out. But when we we get there, we'll realize every sorrow we tasted will have proven to be the best possible thing that could ever have happened to us. In fact, we will thank God endlessly in heaven For every trial we have borne here on earth when we get there. The problem is we can't see it right now. We find ourselves in warfare. It's like heaven and hell are fighting over our lives. Do I endure knowing God's in control? Do I draw near to him? Or do I say, you know something, God? You stink. I'm out of here. This is the way you treat your friends? And we say, I'm out. I'm not enduring. I'm quitting. I'm going to go find my own life now. I'll run it myself. I'm not going to draw near to you. Draw near to me. Well, I've mentioned, and there's a warfare going on, because both heaven and hell are involved in the same event. Both God and the powers of darkness are involved. Let me illustrate this. I've mentioned Johnny Erickson Tata. And uh, she was paralyzed, as many of you know, at the age of 17 in 1967, summer. And she, from the neck down... Uh, now, she talks about how the devil, this is her testimony now, the devil wanted to shipwreck my faith, she said, wanted to dash all my hopes, wanted to ruin my life and make me suicidal, a bitter old woman. But God wanted to pull out of this horrible evil good for his glory and for my good. And she says, what is the good for my life? As I, She was speaking to a, a group of folks who were... Um, I don't know if they were quadriplegics or paralyzed or what. And she goes, what was the good for my life? And she says to these folks, she goes, I can't say what the good is for your life. And I love this line. She says, God's plan for each of us is too personal for me to tell you that. But God's got such a personal plan for every one of his children. And she goes, for me, my values were turned right side up from a spoiled kid to where people matter. She goes, I learned what it meant to hope in heaven and glory in God. I got out of my, my self-centered, egotistical lifestyle, and my life really became serious with God. And she says, I look at my wheelchair, and she goes, that is no longer slavery for me. That, is, that is, a, is a symbol of freedom for me because God used it to set me free. Chuck Colson, many of you know, and during the Watergate scandals in 1971, and 74, of, um, was, was a special counsel to President Nixon. He became a believer in the middle of the scandal, ended up going to jail for three years. But uh, he writes about um, that he found out that the real power was not, was not in the White House, was not political, it wasn't economic, it wasn't in, in the Marine Corps. It, the real power matters, he says, when you can change the human heart. And he goes, and you can only do that through Jesus Christ. And he goes, it took... Prison and losing everything for me to realize that. And he quotes Alexander Solzhenitsyn, who is one of my great heroes. And and, uh, and Solzhenitsyn was in a gulag in, Ru- in the Soviet Union for over ten years, and uh, he wrote these famous, famous words: uh, "Bless you, prison. Bless you for being in my life there. For b- when I was lying in the rotting prison straw." I came to realize that the object of life is not prosperity as we are made to believe, but the maturing of the soul. I'll say it again. The object of life, Solzhenitsyn wrote, is not prosperity as we are made to believe, but the maturing of the soul. Now for Esther, the object of life for her, for God, was to conform her to the image of his son, was to mature her from a spoiled, pampered little brat into a defiant hero for God that would stand up against her culture and be the unique person God had made her to be. But it did require some endurance, knowing that God's in control even when it looked like it was going to be a catastrophe. And so like, like um, Johnny Erickson Tata said, thank you, God, for that wheelchair. Like Colson said, God, thank you for Watergate. You can make the same choice. In other words, yes, maybe right now in your life, Heaven and hell are both working overtime. Yeah, you know, there's powers of darkness in the same events trying to drive you to despair, anger, hatred, bitterness. At the same time, God's wrenching something good out of evil. And what happens and who gets the glory and which purpose is fulfilled is really up to you. The grace from God is here right now, but the choice is yours. It's yours. Where are you in the story of your life today, in the journey? Are you in the beginning? Are you in the middle? Are you towards the end? And what do you want to do with it? Because God's not going to force you to do anything. It's one thing God is, is gracious, and he wants a love relation with you, not a robotic one. And thus, he gives you this wonderful thing called freedom of the will to choose. But he gives grace so you can even make that move. So the issue, you know, I can give you 22 reasons of why God allows suffering, but none of them really satisfy because the real problem has to do with God, a person, a living God. Where is he? Why does he let this happen? I just want to close with this. God placed his son Jesus on the cross and he cut him in half. He put a knife through him. Jesus was hanging there, God forsaken. God did not get him off the cross. No one cut the ropes, the stakes got pulled out. He hung there, the son died, and the father grieved. But on the third day, he rose again. You may hang there, you may say, where is he? But the gospel is this, on the third day, he rose again. And the third day, you shall as well. And the fact that as you endure knowing God's in control, God raises you up. Maybe not in the way you were expecting, you'll come out different than when you went in. But he always raises up his sons and his daughters. So I want to give you the message of of Esther, don't quit. Let's even take the little things right now. Maybe, you know, your your fellow employee borrowed your stapler and didn't bring it back, and you want to wring her neck, okay? God's in control. The stapler shall return. Or maybe when you leave here, uh, you're going to hit some traffic on the LIE or the train will break down again. Don't worry. You will get home. Or, you know, maybe someone's going to interrupt you when you're having coffee downstairs in the middle of your conversation and you will be tempted to get a gun. (laughs) But I want to encourage you. Little trials come. Don't quit. Endure. God is in control. So the little trials, and there's big ones. Some of you are in big ones right now. You're at a real turning point in your life on which direction you're going to go. And let God make you into a hero like he did Esther. If he could do it for Esther, he can do it for any of us in this room. And let him develop your soul. Let him mature your soul. But understand, it will require enduring and moments when you feel like just hanging it up. Amen, let's pray. Father, we ask, and I pray now, that for everyone here who has wandered away from you and knows it, and right now is under conviction by the Holy Spirit, I pray that you would draw them to yourself. Give them no rest, Lord, until they come to you. And follow those who've drawn away from you out of anger and bitterness, at things not turning out the way they wanted, God, I pray they would receive grace, open up their hearts to receive grace from heaven, to draw near to you. May they not go away from you, but come near to you right now. So wherever you are right now in your relationship with God, maybe you're a seeker, you don't even know Christ personally, just just ask the Lord just for forgiveness. God's just, he longs for you. He longs to take you in his arms, cleanse you, breathe life into you, and move you on to your destiny and, and become the person he's called you to be and to do what he's called you to do. Just come, right? And I just come to the Lord Jesus. Say, yes, Lord. I do want to receive you. I want to receive you as my Lord, as my Savior. I want to be forgiven. I want to become your son. I want to know I'm a real Christian. I want my life to change. So all of you have wandered, believers but you're away too and rather than enduring you've been you've been stuck on the side of the road it's time for you to get up and move to where God has for you father I we speak blessings over everyone in the room in that place in the name of Jesus and God develop us into men and women who demonstrate heroic defiant faith that's mature and we have souls that really reflect Jesus We bless you in Jesus' name. Amen.